Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. How should Christians think about near-death experiences, or is there good evidence for the resurrection, or how are the questions of the afterlife informed by what we believe about the biggest questions of life? That's why I'm really excited about our guest today, which is Dr. Gary Habermas, and he is the Distinguished Research Professor and Chair of Department of Philosophy at Liberty University, and he has authored, co-authored, or edited, let me get make sure I got this right, about 43 books now, is that right? Yeah, you know, I don't I don't sit there over top of them and count every one, but that's going to be give or take a book. Yep, 43 is pretty accurate. And it sounds like, and, and you're working on a pretty significant, I mean, most of those are on the resurrection, which is or a lot of those, and obviously a massive topic, but you're currently working on something pretty significant. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, about a half, at 22 or 23, something like that, of the 43 books are on the resurrection, but about... Well, I can tell you almost exactly now. I just I found some old notes with the date on it. About five years ago, some colleagues challenged me to do a magnum opus on the resurrection. I mean, this sounds kind of kind of uh, like you know science fiction type stuff. But I mean, they what they said to me was, "You don't want to die and leave this stuff in your brain. Give it to the church." And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. I would like to leave this stuff for the body of Christ, but I mean, I'd be writing forever to to write down what I've learned about the resurrection. And so I started five years ago at their encouraging, and I am I just passed the forty four hundred page mark, forty four hundred. And and you say, well, then you must just be gathering all your stuff together and publishing it, right? And the answer is really no. Until I hit about the thirty five hundred page mark, all of that was new material. It was all new and. I'm just I'm going strong, and I wished I could kind of take a break, but it's it's a lifetime of research on the resurrection. Well, let me be the one of the many who is just saying a big thank you for all of your work. I know your minimal facts approach, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But your work on the resurrection has been so helpful. Um, it, we use it here when we teach students at Impact 360. When we when I get to teach students and try to popularize some of these ideas for, hey, we have historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. This is amazing. And so I can't wait personally to get my hands on, on your magnum opus here. And so when, do you have kind of a I, date I, in mind? I can't wait to get my hands on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you have kind of an end, end game or a goal set on when you'd like to, to, uh, to, to wrap that? or? Man. Just kind of go until you're done. Scary. It is scary and anxiety-producing to think about how, long, how much longer it may take me. I tell people that if I can finish all but the editing, but I mean to edit 5,000 pages. Craig Keener, someone just told me recently his four-volume, 5,000-page work on X took him a year just to edit. So add a year to this figure. But if I, if I can finish writing by the end of this year or – maybe halfway through next year, I think I'll be a pretty happy camper. But then the whole thing has to be edited and then edited again when a publisher gets a hold of it. So it's it's still a long way to go, and that's 
that's what's anxiety creating. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to read it, and we'll pray for you as you write it. It's going to be such an important gift uh, for the church. And, and we'll talk about some of those things that you've discovered and, and, and thought about along the way. And, and again, you are one of the foremost leaders on the resurrection um, today, and, and so grateful for your work. But sometimes people don't realize that you've actually done a good amount of work on near-death experiences and things like that. Maybe share a little about how you became interested in that, maybe your story, and connect that with these big questions around what happens after after we die or the afterlife and these near-death experiences. Sure. Years ago, because the resurrection has been a lifetime pursuit for me, I mean, sometimes I'm asking interviews, I'll say, well, so did you start studying the resurrection going to help people with their doubts? Because I've got three books on doubt, too. And I thought, well, I'd like to say I was doing it for everybody else, that I was that altruistic, but I really wasn't. I was doing all this on the resurrection to help my own doubt. And I realized about, I don't know, 10 years into the resurrection research, and it's been a, a literal lifetime pursuit, about 10 years into it, I realized that while I was studying the resurrection per se, it was the afterlife that I was really concentrating on. Because if, if Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the death and dying expert, psychiatrist, from years ago was correct, she used to say that children formulate their major ideas of death and dying between the ages of 8 and 11. And the closest person to me in my life, strangely enough, was my great-grandmother when I was 8 years old, passed away at age 84. And I, I've often thought years later, is that event what kind of got the wheels turning, wanting to know she was still alive. She was a committed Christian, but was she still alive, and, and what about the afterlife? And and I started realizing that studying the resurrection was really a concern about the afterlife. Then years later, when I do the resurrection evidence, people will say to me, yeah, but my only objection to what you're doing, your evidence sounds fantastic, but here's the problem. You're asking me to believe in another world. And as far as I know... There are no other worlds. And so so the coming together there of um, resurrection and afterlife, I started hearing about the near-death experiences about them, and I realized if there is an afterlife, if there is an effect, uh, you know, a yellow brick road leading to an emerald city somewhere, and if that's what religion's about, is finding this emerald city, near-death experiences could just maybe tell us that there really is another world. And if there's another world, the resurrection would be one of those entry points to, you know, learning about that other world. And to me, it was just one way to answer that question, the yes, but you want us to believe in Oz, or yes, but, but you want there to be a Narnia. And so now I sometimes start near-death experiences, and I say, yep, there really is a Narnia. And according to one recent report, almost 30 million people in the Western world alone have reported near-death experiences. So I could say, wow. you know, millions and millions of people have been to Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a great way to connect those, because they really are the, the flip side of the other question. And so maybe let's start at the beginning for people, what, and maybe define a few terms along the way, and then we'll talk about some of the evidence for some of these near-death experiences and what that might show. But what what is then a near-death experience? Is there a kind of a definition clearly for that? And what does that mean? Well, <laughs> your word there clearly, clearly is kind of the issue. 
Near-death experiences have been defined variously. Uh, it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all definition, but you could say, as one author said, a near-death experience is a state from which most people who are in that state can be thought to have a good chance of dying if immediate intervention has not occurred. Now, the only problem with that kind of definition, well, not the only one, but one of the major problems is that some people have near-death experiences and they're not just about to die. Sometimes it's an imminent car accident. They can see, they're going to say, oh my gosh, I can't stop in time. I'm going to hit this car. And they're up above their body looking down at the accident before it even occurs. So you don't have to be near death to have one, but that is the normal state. Okay, that's really helpful. And then so sometimes people wonder, look, there's a lot of things that show up in popular press and these ideas and maybe even some that people say have been debunked. What are the kinds of things that you have found to be strongly evidenced near-death experiences? And is, are there different kinds? So kind of, hey, my uncle's cousin's nephew said one time versus something right. that might be a little more empirically verifiable, I guess. Yeah, that's good. We could have some categories of evidence for afterlife, or one of them could be really bad fourth-removed stories. <laughs> many of them are that kind. You're right. You know, uncles, brothers, sisters. I read it in the newspaper. Uh, no, I didn't. My brother told me he read it. You know, and but but I I did a recent uh, I had a written recent written debate on the resurrection in a rather large research volume and. For that volume, I'd never done it this way before. I'd never wrote up the near-death experiences this way in my, you know, my pub- in previous publications. But I argued that there are five kinds, with some overlap, but there is at least five different kinds of near-death states that can be thought of separately. As you know, this kind of evidence is not the same as that kind of evidence, and so. When someone says to me, well, give me your best case. Well, I can't because it depends on whether you like evidential cases inside an operating room where there are medical doctors and they could say yay or nay, or are you the kind of person that says, no, your ears may have been working a little better than you thought. Let's get a near-death experience outside the room, four floors away in the hospital where your family's gathered in a waiting room, or there are NDEs. In the blind, there are NDEs that are shared by healthy persons, and then there's a what I call a twilight zone kind of NDE experience where, let's say, let's let's use my case. Let's say I had an experience after my grandmother died, and I thought I saw her in a near-death experience, but she'd already been dead for five or ten years. Some of the Twilight Zone cases are a discussion between, let's say, a father and a son, but the father's been dead for a long time and is not coming back. So you could say, well, the child's here, but the father's been dead for a long time. So where's the father been? Is he in Narnia? You know, is he in the other world? So those are some of the most impressive ones. I think the most evidential ones are ones at a distance, now, distance could be three floors away in a hospital, or it might be three miles away. Or that last category, where the son learns something from the father that nobody in the family knew. Like if the father says, son, I hate to tell you this, but your favorite cousin over in Afghanistan was just killed. 
and you're going to get a telegram tomorrow saying he's dead. And you come to and you tell the couple people at the bedside, and there's some horror at that. And the next day, you get a telegram, and your cousin died in Afghanistan. That's that last category. So there's some really weird ones and some really heavily evidenced ones. No, that that's really helpful. So the main thing I think I want people to understand as you look at this is there's lots of different circumstances, but these aren't just kind of secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand stories. There's there's confirmation of important details, right? There's stuff where people are confirming things they shouldn't be able to do. Is that the basic idea? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'll show you in this day of magic fingers on computers where you can get stories immediately. A story was published years ago in a well-evidenced book that has over 100 evidence near-death experiences. The book's called The Self Does Not Die. And there was a case in that book where a woman was up above her body and she was looking down on top of a medical piece of a medical equipment that was over everybody's head. In fact, they had to get a stepladder to a little, a short stepladder to look up on top of it. And she looked down and when she came to, she said, I'm obsessive compulsive. I have, you know, OCD, if I remember the story correctly. And she said, I tend to memorize long numbers. And she said, there's a number on top of that medical apparatus and it's a 12 digit number and here it is and she repeated the 12 digit number well she repeated it if i remember the story again she repeated it to two nurses and one of them copied the number down and then sometime later they had to move that piece of machinery or apparatus and the nurse said hey hey, hey before you take that out of the room let me look up on top and they they put a guy up there on like a little ladder and he read the number, and she had had it written down on a sheet of paper. Well, my grad assistant, a young guy in his uh, early 30s doing a Ph.D. here at Liberty, he got that nurse's email and emailed her and heard her account firsthand of her hearing about this 12-digit number and writing it down and having it be accurate when they moved the machine out of the room a few days later. So... I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. You know, a 12-digit, a random 12-digit number on top of a, a medical apparatus. So, yeah, it's not, they're not hearsay at all. She was there. She heard the person say it, and she said it changed her life. Hmm. And wow. right away, my grad assistant contacted her directly. No, that's, that's, that's amazing. And so that's, that's the power of these. And so how would you think about it? Are, are near-death experiences evidence for an afterlife, or how are they evidence? How should we think about those as Christians? Well, yeah, the last part, as Christians, that, that's um, tricky, because it, a lot of times near-death experiences, what near-death experiences say to people, the way they interpret them is kind of generically like, oh, there's many roads that lead to God or all religions. I, you, know, you wonder how they get that probably because a whole lot of people have had near-death experiences. Therefore, they must believe a bunch of different things. Therefore, they must all be cool. Well, there's some false inferences there. There's some false conclusions. But that's the way they walk away with it. So it is a challenge to unbelievers. But as far as the first part of your question, what about, uh, what's to say about the afterlife? Well, for some of these people, they have near-death experiences, and they may be out. Let's just say for the most part, it's all going to be over, the near-death experience. A person will either die, in which case we don't get their testimony, or they come and talk about it. But it won't be more than an hour or so, let's say. There's a few longer ones, but 
they're short times after a person is pronounced dead or close to death. And so you say, well, I'm sorry, but within two, three hours is not life after death. Well, what do you do with that Twilight Zone case, the, the fifth category, where you're sure you're with your dad and you have evidence that you were with your dad and, you know, you got the telegram the next day about your cousin who died in Afghanistan. You know, there are situations like that where you can look up the information for yourself and you can't just say, well, you know, that didn't happen. Now, it might only be an hour or so, but your dad, if you saw your dad, and how else did you get the information about Afghanistan? If that's what happened... Your dad's been dead for, let's say, 10 years. So what's he been doing all that time? I don't know, but that's not two hours. So, And here's another way to look at it. Medical doctors and scientists discovered just a couple decades ago that if you have a cardiac arrest, now there's different kinds of cardiac arrest, but if you have one with, with ventricular fibrillation, if you have that species of a cardiac arrest, your heart stops. That's what it means, cardiac arrest. And in about 15 seconds later, your brain stops. Now, people return from those states. So they're not dead dead, but they return from those states. And let's say, like in one case, a fellow was in that situation for a half hour, and there's many of those. Where was he for a half hour? Well, if he reports some data with a running testimony that can be verified, but he was flat brain, flat heart, that looks like he was conscious with no brain or no heart. I have to caution, I shouldn't say with no brain or heart, with no measurable brain or heart, according to the machines. But up until just recently, we've been totally happy to trust those machines and say, yeah, you didn't have any brain or heart. So what happens for that half hour? If you're conscious for a half hour, you just raise the bar a little more. And then dad at 10 years, that's further. So it gets more and more evidential as, as science gets better and better bringing people back. No, that's really helpful. And then, and so, at least, and I think I've heard you put it this way, that there, it's, an, it's an argument for evidence for minimal life after death. Is that the way you like to put it? Kind of in that? that is the way I say it. You've been reading some things here that I've written. Yeah, because, minimal life after death. Because if, it, let's just say I'm in that state, and some of these measurable states have lasted, a few, you know, well, I know a few cases at about the three-hour mark. So... Let's just say you've got a few hours here. That's intriguing. But what you do with dad, you know, who's been dead for 10 years, that's, those are tough. But here's another way to look at it. In the Western world, naturalism is boss. Naturalism is a philosophical worldview that says the natural world is all there is. There is no Middle Earth. There is no Narnia. There is no Oz or Yellow Brick Road or Emerald City. There is no, none of that. When you die, you die, that's it. There's no God, there's no, you know, whatever. And the person says, whoa, 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 I've got some evidence here that consciousness has extended beyond the body in thousands of cases, and some of these are measurable. Well, one of the biggest things to get out of this is naturalism looks like the odd man out in this discussion. A Christian, strangely enough, may be shoulder to shoulder with a Buddhist, and both may be saying, or a Hindu or Muslim, and say, yeah, there's an afterlife. But the one who says, no, there isn't, is the naturalist. And that, that runs our university systems today as a worldview, and it looks like it's the worst off on this evidence. 
And that and that's highly significant because one of the chief competitors for the Christian worldview is naturalism, as you were saying. And so any right. evidence that weakens the reasonableness or the plausibility of naturalism is a very helpful thing to get, you know, even minimal life after death on the table is a very significant conclusion to, to arrive at. It is. It really is. And and you know what? You you asked you hinted at another point there that I probably am afraid will move on and I'll forget to say it as we go on. But some people might still be thinking about something we said a minute ago, and you said, well, you said the uh, Muslim and Christian may be shoulder to shoulder, both agreeing that there's an afterlife against a naturalist, and I understand that. But why do people kind of think that kind of amorphous general world religion is correct from all this? What about people who say, you know, I'm Jewish, and or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, and... The angel told me I was going to come back and be here forever in heaven. What about that? Well, many near-death experiences are very positive. Now, I will, I will say this. About 20% of them are negative, are quite negative. Some of them are scary negative. But most near-death experiences are positive. The memories of them are positive. And someone says, okay, well, what about that? What about an atheist who says, I- I'm told I'm going to come back and live forever? Well, the main issue is those are interpretations. When someone tells you what kind of world they're in, and it was beautiful, and the colors were beautiful, and the music was beautiful, and, and all that, but there's no evidence. You go, what about Dad being dead 10 years ago? Yeah, but Dad's given you evidence. If the telegram comes tomorrow for the cousin in Afghanistan... That's evidence. But the vast majority of heavenly parts of the NDEs are not evidenced at all. And so that's no different than someone saying to you, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist, I'm an atheist. Those are testimonies. So we're shoulder to shoulder with them, but nobody wins on evidence alone. I think it was um, Walter Martin, the cold expert years ago, who said, don't start comparing experience with unbelievers because they'll beat you every time. You know, they can have some beautiful reports. But experience doesn't make religion. So I wanted to get that point in. You, people who are bothered by unbelievers having good experiences, it's, it's no different than an unbeliever saying, I had a great experience in my synagogue or my mosque last week. It's the same thing. It's a world testimony that we all have. Yeah, and then from there, and, and we'll probably come back to this as well, then the question is, well, what does the evidence say about the particular religious claim, right, or Christianity, or did Jesus really rise from the dead, or is anything that tips the scales in that favor? Sure. You know, and so we can sure. go yeah. ahead. By the way, one, one more comment about that, we could be shoulder to shoulder with a Muslim. You know, a lot of our, your perceptive listeners will realize that some of our best arguments for God's existence come from Muslim philosophers like the Kalam cosmological argument, and they were doing other forms. I had a, a specialist to uh, a colleague of mine, Dave Beck, who specializes. He, he's doing a book on God's existence right now for a major publisher, and he was telling me that in the Middle Ages there were even some forms of the intelligent design argument that were, uh, I think he said, thought up by Muslim philosophers. So on certain subjects, God, ethics, afterlife, different religions can stand shoulder to shoulder. But then you're right when you start saying, well, yeah, but where's the evidence that separates the religions? That's when we get talking about some serious things. No, that's that's really helpful context, and I think that just helps people have a better and, and kind of move beyond some of the 
initial maybe misunderstandings or slogans or things that often don't get talked about in our culture into, okay, here's what that means and doesn't mean. And here's how you might decide a question like that, given that there are near death experiences. And so I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. One of the things that often comes up and people have lots of questions about the afterlife, but I was throw a couple of these at you and see what you think. You know, people have questions about say, and you've written on this in, in your book, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality in other right. books, but what happens in the intermediate state? Sometimes people just generally wonder, hey, what, what happens when my loved one dies? Where are they? Does it even make sense to say where is it? Are they with God? Do they have a body yet? Kind of talk about just even theologically, maybe that one first, and then kind of we'll sure. go from there. Sure. The majority Christian theological position is that the disembodied state is a state where we are not re-embodied yet. We do not have resurrection bodies. Now, some people believe we have an intermediate body, kind of a, hard to explain, we don't know the details. In other words, you don't have to be Casper the ghost, but most theologians believe the intermediate state is disembodied. Now, Peter Kraft, a, an Aristotelian philosopher, he says that you know, to live forever and to live well is to live in a body. That's the classic Christian and Jewish view. But I believe it was Peter. He said, Plato is right as far as he went. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Plato taught that at death we're disembodied, and it's a beautiful state to be in, and we'll flee to the heavens. We won't have our bodies to worry about where just when you're getting to a good point in the book and you're learning some really important things, you're hungry. So you don't have to worry about you know, bodily needs. So you're disembodied, and that's supposed to be an exalted state for Plato. Well, so Kraft was making the point, Plato's right on the intermediate state, but wrong on the final state because we'll be re-embodied. So maybe that's a good way to look at it, that the intermediate state, according to most theologians, is a disembodied state so that if you dig up a body, which happens many times when bodies are exhumed for this or that reason, there's still a body in the tomb. And that's why the empty tomb was so you know, strange and evidential for Jesus, because my grandmother who died when I was, my great-grandmother who died when I was eight years old, her body's still in the grave. So that's because the intermediate state doesn't require a body. No, that, that's helpful, you know, in that instance of, you know, Paul referring to, you know, absent from the body is present with the Lord and, 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 right. and passages like that in Second Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1 and elsewhere. And so that, that's helpful yep. as well. How, how, how do yeah. you ask? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say he actually ca- calls that state be naked. And be naked, he means, almost all commentators think, by naked he means without a body. And Paul says he longs to be re-embodied, which is interesting. He longs to have his body, but in the meantime, he still says that that intermediate state, you, you cited the verse in Second Corinthians 5, absent for the body present of the Lord, he still says in Philippians 1 that to die and be with Christ is better by far. So even though we can be without a body and that's not our normal state, Paul does say very, very clearly that he desires to go back there because it's far better than the life or present we live in. And then, of course, the argument would be, when we have our new resurrection bodies, it'll be better still. No, that, that, that's wonderful. And one of the things I was about to ask you was, how has all this study, and then we'll talk about some evidence for it in a second, but how has this affected, you know, personally, your uh, approach to, 
you know, fear of dying and how have you seen this applied to help Christians who may be afraid or have fear of death and things like that? How have your studies around near-death experiences or the resurrection informed or helped there? Well, it's helped it tremendously. I, I said at the beginning of the uh, interview that that I started this not because I was, <laughs> I was, you know, so intent on helping everybody in the world with their fear of death. I was intent with dealing with my own questions and fear of death. And over the years, being around this topic 24-7, where this, you know, the 4,400 pages on the resurrection and the evidence, which you referred to as the minimal facts earlier, or near death, there is plenty of evidence for both Narnia in general, i.e. near-death experiences and so on, another world, in other words, there is plenty of evidence for another world and plenty of evidence for these events, both near-death experiences, which are more generic, and the resurrection, which is much more specific. And so over the years, it has caused me great rest, great peace. There's a good book out now, John Burke's book with uh, Baker, called Imagine Heaven, and it's a pastoral book. There are others, but it's a good pastoral book on what we know from Scripture and near-death experiences. What do we know about heaven and why we should relax, and what does Paul mean when he says, I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. So I know it's had that effect on my own life. It has almost deadened the fear. I mean, I'll tell you my biggest fear right now. (laughs) that something's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to finish my magnum opus. That's the main thing I want to do right now. I'm not worried about anything beyond that. I just want to get this project done. So that it, that's a different kind of uh, angst. But as far as fear of death, I think the evidence is, is just overwhelming that there's an afterlife. No, that's 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 amazing. And I think it's so encouraging, you know, as we talk about it, and Corinthians talks, First Corinthians talks about this, you know, death, where is your sting? And and that's the context of Paul making that case for the resurrection and talking about the reality of it, that, you know, we don't believe in fairy tales for grown-ups. We don't believe in the Easter Bunny. That's not what we're doing here. This is real, and we can know this, and we trust that. And so I think that's so powerful. And and so maybe with our last few minutes here, I'd love to—I mean, obviously, you're one of the leading researchers and experts on the evidence for the resurrection. You can write a 5,000-page book, which not many people can do, on the resurrection. So what are— I guess some of those things that you have found most compelling, and maybe on the way in, just briefly summarize maybe your minimal facts approach and how you typically approach the question, but then maybe also talk about, hey, these are a couple things that just are really strong evidence that Jesus really did, was raised from the dead. Well, I do think that the minimal facts argument is the quickest. Well, it is quick. It's designed to be a quick argument, but it's also the most powerful argument. In fact, one writer who doesn't even isn't even crazy about my minimal facts argument because they think we I should spend more time talking about the reliability of the entire New Testament. But and that's important too. But this person in being critical said this thing is almost totally taken over apologetics. They say minimal facts is the way to argue now. Well, I'm glad, but it's an easy way to get in and out of a discussion where we can help other people with these questions. Now basically in a in just a a minute. The key to the minimal facts argument is you could take a half dozen, let's say, nice round number, a half dozen historical facts that even critics will admit about the resurrection. Now, here's the key. They've got to be scholars. They've got to be scholars in a relevant field, not 
you know, an English professor or, I mean, nothing wrong with English professors, but I wouldn't presume to talk about English and, and you know, we need to stay within our lane, so to speak. Uh, but if you use the scholars who are trained in these areas, it doesn't make any difference if they're atheist New Testament scholars. Sometimes I prefer to use the skeptics because they'll grant evidence pretty quickly and people don't suspect them of being covert Christians or something. And I would take about a half dozen facts that, now, it's, it's important that they agree with those facts, but what's more important is the reason why they agree with them. They agree with them because the evidence is so powerful. Of those six facts, the six I usually use, there are over 100 reasons, historical and other reasons, to accept those six facts. That's a lot. You know, that's a pretty strong average per fact. Yeah. And my, my argument is that data alone is enough to show that the resurrection of Jesus is by far the best explanation for what occurred. Yeah, and so what what are a couple of those? Like in, in terms of there's the approach, it's not just counting noses or saying, hey, a majority of people agree with this, it's, it's why they do, it's because there's good reasons for it. But right. what would you say are one of the two of the ones that you find most persuasive to people when you interact with them? Maybe they're skeptics or people you're, or that people, believers find most encouraging when you teach on this that kind of the historical evidence is for um, the resurrection of Jesus? Well, you know, I can give all six of them in just a sentence or two. Uh, it's very brief. That's what's so useful. We have to start with the fact that Jesus died. And when someone says, well, that's not evidence of the resurrection, of course it's not, but he's, he's got to be dead. So Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, his disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. Three, their lives were totally transformed to the point of being willing to die for this specific truth. Their life was transformed. Fourthly, they started preaching, and they preached this message about the risen Jesus very, very early. Atheists, Bart Ehrman, atheists are willing to admit that this preaching about the cross started immediately after the cross, immediately. And then fifth and sixth, two skeptics, James, the brother of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, both were converted when they thought they saw the risen Jesus. So those are six. Now, sometimes I, I kind of go six plus one, and I talk about the MP2. Now, the MP2 doesn't quite make the grade, because to get minimal facts, I argue that you have to get only those facts that have many, many evidences. And secondly, about 90-something percent of critical scholars will agree with them. And the agreement on the empty tomb is not quite that high. It's in the 70s percentile. Someone says, how do you know that? Well, I mean, I've done a head count, so I've, I've counted the major sources. But the empty tomb is still highly evidential. So with those seven, there are over 100 reasons why we can know they're historical. That's wonderful. And you're documenting these in your magnum opus, right? I am. I'm writing a chapter per fact. So... Every one of those six plus the resurrection, what I call, I mean, the empty tomb, what I call six plus one. And Michael Kona and I called it four plus one in our book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Those seven have over 100, which is an average of about 14 evidences per fact. And I, I do a chapter on each one of them. And, and there's much else besides. I've got three chapters on the death of Jesus, 150 pages documented the death of Jesus. No, that that's amazing. And again, so, so helpful in all the research you've done on it. Real quick, what's what do you think is the single strongest objection to 
the resurrection. How might you respond to that kind of quickly for a, for a student or somebody actually, engaging? Actually, actually, critics have almost given up. I shouldn't say almost given up, but I, critics, remember the rule, they've got to be scholars in a relevant field. They have largely given up going after naturalistic theories. For one reason, they don't want to pick just one. As one said to me in a, in a debate, I don't want to pick one and have you trap me in the corner. So they don't like to pick just one. But probably the overall comment that would throw most Christians kind of for a loop would be to say, yeah, 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 these are good evidences for something. Something strange ha- seemed to happen here. But, as we said earlier, I don't believe in Narnia. I don't believe in Oz. I don't believe in Middle Earth. So if there's no other world, I don't know what happened. But it wasn't a resurrection because there's no world in which we could, into which we are resurrected. So that's when I say time out. Let's talk about near-death experiences. Yeah, and then we're back to where we talked about it and said, well, hey, hold on. <laughs> it looks like Narnia might be real after all. These are well evidenced. Exactly. And, and then, then I could end by saying, hey, what are you going to do about the Yellow Brick Road? Are you, are you interested in moving toward the uh, Emerald City or not? You know, that kind of thing. Absolutely, because then it gets down to, well, what do you want to do, not just what's reasonable to believe. And I think that's really helpful. And I hope this conversation even just, I mean, there's so much we could talk about and time flies. I mean, you've sure. written so much and offer so many good reasons to think about why the resurrection is, is a reality and true, as well as discussion about near-death experiences and everything else. But I hope as parents that are listening to this or just students or wherever you're at, maybe you're commuting to work, or whatever you're doing right now, I hope what you're getting is we don't believe in fairy tales for grown-ups. This is real stuff you can investigate with eyes wide open. It makes a difference and it actually impacts everyday life. And that's one of the things we love doing here at Impact 360. We get to work with students. We love to train them. We love to help them understand why they believe what they believe. And so if we can be an ally to you in the training of your students, come to impact360.org and find out about our summer experiences for high school students or our nine-month gap year fellows program, whatever that might be. We want to be an ally to you. But I hope you've been encouraged by this conversation with Dr. Gary Habermas, who's written, again, several books. But Dr. Habermas, I just want to thank you so much for just not only taking the time today, but just all the many years of scholarship and in, in laboring on the foundation of our faith and really how to, how to share that with people in a compelling way. Thank you, Jonathan. I've had a good time. You're, you're a good questioner, and uh, I, I'm glad for the pinpoint questions. I'm going to have to stop and explain that that's not really what I say or something like that. So you did a great job. Well, I appreciate it. And again, we'll have more links to resources with uh, Dr. Gary Habermas and all of his books and and resources at impact360.org in the show notes. And until next week, we hope you'll think about these questions or think about how you can have more influence on the next generation and help them understand why they believe what they believe. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.